This is Grant Fuhr, and welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Oh, baby, am I fired up today. We got just an absolute gem of a guest for you on this Wednesday. Happy Hump Day. Hope everybody's having a great week. Uh, maybe you're sitting at the lake. Maybe you're on your way back. Maybe you're working your bag off. Wherever you are, shout out to you. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, I'll get to it here very shortly, but first, let's have a look at our sponsors of today's episode. How about the Lauren? Uh, the Lauren. How about Lauren and the team at Art and Soul? When it comes to people's treasured items and memorabilia, she always likes to make sure the process used for framing is 100% reversible. All these pictures have conservation glass. You know, I had to ask myself, what the hell is conservation glass? Well, it turns out it's museum-grade glass, meaning you're getting top quality. It also means that 99% of UV rays will be blocked to help keep the items from fading over time. When She says, when I frame jerseys, I always sew them into place using cotton thread so that the fibers on the jerseys are not damaged. I'm telling you, she takes care of you, and she's showing me some work. I mean... Uh, let's talk about some local boys. Corey Cross, Braden Holpe, Wade Redden, Scott Hartnell, Clark and Carther, Mark Latestu. All these guys, she's done jerseys up on them, and they look superb. She's open Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Give her a call, 780-808-6313, or stop in 501639th Street. It's more than just a frame. It's a story. Gardner Management is a Lloyd Mr. Base company specializing in all types of rental properties. They host the podcast. Wade has been an excellent landlord. Uh, and if you're, whether you're looking for something small like myself, a little uh, tiny studio, or maybe you got uh, you need some space, you need 6,000 square feet of space, commercial space, give Wade a call, 780-808-5025. Maybe you're looking for a table, such as this beautiful artwork from Carly Clausen and uh, Windsor Plywood. Maybe you want a little, Win- uh, a little Windsor, a little river table in your house or Maybe you got a little uh, spot where you like to hang out with your buddies. I'm telling you, it's a kick-ass table. They do kick-ass work there. Uh, he also wants to mention that they're into deck, fence, window, and sliding door season. These are great people over there, so give them a call, 780-875-9663. Maz Entertainment. He wants to let you know if you're planning any intimate ceremonies or a wedding. Um, this is the guy to uh, check out. He's a... Uh, Oh, he's the best at what he does, folks. I mean, yeah, he's got a lot of passion in his uh, DJ business, um, and he can make an event just superb. Uh, he's been, I've seen a, on his Instagram, you got to head over to his Instagram or Facebook and see some of the videos. they got some cool stuff going on. I know uh, the backyard movie thing has, uh, well, I talk about it for the last about three, four weeks because I got to see, uh, you know, me and the, the son got to sit and watch Sandlot. Now, he's still talking about it. Hey, this is another week past, and he's still talking about it. Uh, so if you're looking for some entertainment or you need someone to, uh, you know, give you the DJ uh, fix for your next great event, give uh, Cody a call at 780-214-2920. How about the SMP billboard across from the UFA here in town? Thanks to Read and Write with the amazing work of Deanna Wandler putting her touches on, you know, just making it look good. Like it looks good. Um, if you're interested in advertising on the show, visit SeanNewmanPodcast.com. Uh, In the top right corner, hit the contact button and send me your information. we got lots of different options, and I want to find you something that can work for the both of us. Now, on to your T-Bar 1 Tale of the Tape. 
grew up in Spruce Grove, Alberta. Won a WHL championship with the Victoria Cougars. Was drafted 8th overall by the Edmonton Oilers in 1981. He's a five-time Stanley Cup champion, all with the Oilers. Vesna in 1987-88, a William N. Jennings Trophy in 1993-94 season. Over his career, he played 867 games with 403 wins. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2003. He holds an unbelievable amount of records. Longest winning streak by a rookie goalie, 23 games. Most assists in a single season by a, by a goaltender, 14. Most games played in a single season, 79. Most consecutive games started, 76. 2017, he was named one of the top 100 players of all time. I am talking about Mr. Grant Fuhr. So buckle up. Here we go. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Tonight I'm joined by legendary Grant Fuhr. Uh, thank you, sir, for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I got to start off with, I follow you on Twitter, and I'm always curious <laughs> why you engage with people who are just, I don't know, ignorant, assholes, dumb. I mean, the list goes on of words you can use about them. Do you have fun with that, or is that just something that comes naturally? Actually, you know what? I have fun with it. I mean, it's interesting to follow Twitter to see what people think. and It's funny how people, when they hide behind a keyboard, think differently than if you ever met them in person. So if somebody makes a dumb comment, then I'll respond to it. <laughs> you, just, you just let them know. You can lead them down a path, and then they end up sinking themselves. I, I assume you hear the exact same arguments against you at every step of the way, which is kind of, uh, you know, from an onlooker, kind of laughable because you don't hear a new argument against you, and there's not really any good argument against you. No. I mean, if the best thing can come up with is something that happened over 30 years ago, then my life hasn't been too bad. No, it most certainly has not. Um, the latest one has been about Kevin Lowe being in the Hall of Fame. Uh, what are your thoughts on Kevin Lowe getting in there? I think it's great. I mean, for our, he was a nuts and bolts guy for our dressing room at Edmonton. And any time a guy wins six Stanley Cups, was he an eight-time All-Star? And it's not an accident. And one, it's a hard thing to do, especially as a defensive defenseman. So for him to get the recognition he deserves, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Yes, were there other guys that deserved to get into the Hall of Fame? Sure there were. Theo Fleury deserves to be in. Alex McGillney deserves to begin to get in. So hopefully at some point they'll get in. Yeah. Um, you can't argue with the, the names you're saying. I don't think you can argue with Kevin Lowe's. Uh, everybody always points to um, he didn't put up the numbers. But I'm, I'm, a, I'm a defenseman. I'm a defensive defenseman. And so his style of play makes a lot of sense to me. And at some point, those guys have to be rewarded as well. Uh, most definitely. I mean, you look at Rod Lingway's in the Hall of Fame. He's as good a defensive defenseman as there was. I mean, I laugh when they talk about points. Well, I've only got, what have I got, 55 points. <laughs> I'm in the Hall. So if you're going by points, then, yeah, goalie should, probably shouldn't be in the Hall. So it, there's different criteria for different positions. And I think defensive defensemen are as critical to a team winning as an offensive defenseman. You know, speaking of points, I think I was in uh, Boys on the Bus. I went down memory lane this week and watched Boys on the Bus, the documentary, you guys. I think it was Gretzky talking about you, saying in the beginning you couldn't pass a puck, and by the end 
you were making passes on the tape. Well, I mean, you hold the record for 14 assists in a single season as a goaltender. Uh, was that something, you know, you, you wanted to get better at or you knew you had to get better at? It was something I had to get better at. I mean, I was horrible when I first started because you never had to learn it. <laughs> I mean, all you were worried about was stopping a puck. But with our system at Edmonton, you had to be able to play the puck. You had to be able to direct pucks into certain areas. So it was a – with John Muckler, myself, Glenn Sather, there was a concerned effort to learn how to play the puck and play the puck properly. Did they pull you aside in the first year and go, listen, Grant, you got you to gotta learn how to play the puck here? No, they left me alone my first year, but by my second year, there was a little more emphasis on being able to put pucks in the right areas and get out and handle the puck to help the defenseman a little bit. Well, I want to go back uh, to before Oilers. Uh, I've listened a lot, and I've heard you talk a lot about, I mean, it's hard not to go to the greatest team ever uh, put together and the dynasty the Oilers were, but uh, I found some interesting things, you know, in your documentary that really stuck out. And the first one I wanted to talk about was, you know, you're a southpaw. You're, you're not the, the standard issue goaltender. Um, and to begin with, you had to use right-handed equipment. Is that correct? Yeah, I started off as a right-handed goalie. So I had to learn to play that way when I was young, and I switched over, oh, about 12 years old to, to my natural hand. I played baseball and caught with my right hand. I throw with my left hand. So for me, it was I shot right-handed. So for me, it was natural to try and play goal that way. They just didn't have gloves for me at that age. Did you notice it? Was it a noticeable difference when all of a sudden they gave you a left-handed glove and you're like, oh, that just feels way better? It was just more comfortable, but I didn't know any better. So I learned to play right-handed. And even at Edmonton, sometimes in practice, I'd switch hands just for the fun of it. No, you wouldn't. You'd switch, you'd switch hands? Yeah, I could still play that hand if I had to. So I wasn't as good a puck handler, but I could still stop pucks fine. <laughs> Did you just do it to taunt the guys then? Well, we'd have fun with it in practice. Andy and I'd switch gloves sometimes just to be different. But I mean, it's, it was almost as comfortable for me to be that to be right-handed as it was left-handed. It's hard to get away from the, the Oilers. I mean, what was the practices like? I feel like you guys were just so loosey-goosey. You were a bunch of young guys. You step on the ice, and that group of players on that Oilers team is unbelievable. Was practice that fun all the time then? It was. They were competitive and they were high tempo, but they were a lot of fun. I mean, our guys wanted to score all the time and Andy and I didn't want them to score. So practices got competitive and some of the drills were based on we goalies had to skate if they scored. Players had to skate if they didn't score. So there was some competitions and we had a lot of fun with it. Did you ever put any bets on it then? Uh, there might have been some lunch money that may have changed hands over the course of a few years. <laughs> well, how about the WHL? Um, you played out in Victoria. You won a WHL championship out in Victoria. Um, what was moving out west like at a young age? Uh, you know what is interesting? For me, I was, what, all of 15, 16 years old. So anytime you leave home to go play hockey, the good news is you get hockey first and foremost to worry about. And at that time, my parents were going through a divorce. So it was a good time to get away a little bit, but it was also a good time to see if I could grow myself in the game of hockey so I walked into a good situation in Victoria where they'd already had a veteran goalie there in Kevin Eastman so they gave me a great opportunity to play a little bit and we had a good hockey club were you uh drafted by him or signed by him or invited to a main camp how did that work back then back then it was just invited to camp 
And their heads, one of their head scouts was in Edmonton, a guy, gentleman by the name of Ken LaRue. And he'd reached out to see if I'd be interested in going out there. And the first year I went out there, I hung around for a couple of weeks and didn't stay. I came back and played midget back in Spruce Grove. But I got a taste of it to see how it was, to see if there was something I wanted to do or not. And the next year I went back out and managed to stay out there. I can imagine the travel schedule for Victoria back then. Uh, was it as bad as it is now uh, with all the dub players talking about being on the bus all the time? Probably worse. I mean, you made two trips all the way to Winnipeg each year. So you think in Victoria, you've got an hour and a half ferry ride before you even get on the road. So quick trip to the ferry terminal, jump on the ferry for an hour and a half. And I think our shortest bus ride after that was probably New West, which is about an hour after you get off the ferry. Or you were a couple hours into Seattle, three into Portland, about 15 to Calgary. <laughs> so we, we covered some miles. No kidding. Did you enjoy the bus trips? You know what? It was a learning experience, and I didn't know any better. So as a young kid, it was great. Part of a hockey team, and you learn to travel, which I learned to sleep sitting up, because as a rookie, you don't get one of the beds in the back. You learn to sleep sitting up. So it's, you learn to travel, and it just made the game easier when I turned pro. Uh, your coach that year was um, Jack Shoup? Yep, Jack Shoup. Yeah, he's got ties to Lloyd Minster. He coached the, the junior A team here back in uh, the 70s, I believe. Um, what was he like as a, a coach, as a young goalie to come into? Jack was great. I mean, he ran the program like it was a professional program. We practiced 10, 30, 11 o'clock every day like a regular professional team would. So Jack had an interesting style. He always had a three-piece suit on, on the ice. On so the ice? Sit, oh, yeah. He'd sit in direct traffic from one spot. So, <laughs> But our practices were high tempo. They weren't long. I mean, we were maybe 45 minutes to an hour, so it was a Great setup to turn pro. Why did he wear a suit on the ice? That was just Jack. <laughs> did he, I assume then you guys wore suits. I, I assume if he's dressing like that and he ran it like a pro, he, he was making you guys dress up wherever you went? We did. We did, except on the bus. You could wear sweats on the bus, but once you get on, getting ready to get off the bus, you had to have a jacket on. Well, your second year, or is it your third year? Second year with the Victoria, you guys uh, set the WHL for most wins that year with 60, correct? Uh, I'm not sure what the total was, but yeah, it was my second year there. Second year, 60 wins. You had a 28-game unbeaten streak, and that's the year you go to a WHL championship. And I, you know, I didn't really put much thought into it, but then I got digging a little bit, and you guys played Calgary Wranglers in the finals. Do you remember all that? We did. We got down 3-1 and then ended up coming back to beat them in seven. Do you remember who was across from me in the crease and, and playing a net for, for the Wranglers? Oh, yeah. Vernie and I still laugh about that. So, What, what stands out to me is the down 3-1 is one thing. How about the seven games over an eight-day span between Victoria and Calgary? Yeah, there were some miles covered in between those games. I mean, that was the fun <laughs> of the WHL back then. I mean, and the worst part was we had to go to the Memorial Cup within a day or two after we beat Calgary. So all the way out to Windsor. Oh, really? And was that by bus as well? No, we flew out there. So that part was okay. You guys' bodies had to be just absolutely mangled by that. Oh, we were young. We didn't know any better. And you're resilient when you're young. So travel wasn't much of an issue because you just don't know any better. 
I will agree with you, but still, that's a little extreme, isn't it? Seven games, eight days for the finals. It goes to game seven. You guys do end up winning it, coming back from 3-1. I assume uh, the Victoria Memorial Arena was absolutely rocking that night. Oh, it was awesome. About 54, 5,500 people, whatever they could jam in there. So, yeah, it was a great, it was a great old building to play in. And you had hardly had time to celebrate it. Did you guys get to celebrate it that night? Uh, we probably celebrated a little bit. I mean, not being of drinking age, we didn't get to celebrate like you would when you're a little older. But at the same time, we knew we had a little bit more to go. And we unfortunately didn't play very good in the Memorial Cup. We might have ran out of gas at that point. I, I did uh, enjoy in your documentary hearing Sather and uh, Paul Coffey talk about watching you at the Memorial Cup. I thought that was quite interesting. Did you know that uh, in your time in Edmonton? And for people, who, I guess, who haven't seen uh, your documentary, uh, Sather basically said, we can't draft this kid. And Paul Coffey said, I don't block shots. Um, the funny part is, the first time I heard that was watching the documentary. Really? So, yeah, I had no idea, which made it even more entertaining because playing with Coffey, I knew he didn't block shots. So. <laughs> Well, that was Barry Frazier who, who stuck to his guns, the, the head scout of the Oilers at the time, obviously saw something in you liked. Um, it, you know, just hearing the Sather talk about it, that essentially he'd watched you a hundred times and Sather watched you twice. He knew you better and they end up drafting you eighth. Like that's a really gutsy pick by Barry when the head or, you know, the GM doesn't want to do it. Oh, I know. And the sad part is, I guess the two games that Glenn saw, I was horrible both games. So it, it's a good thing Barry was around for a lot more games. It's uh, pretty cool that he had that much trust in his scouting staff to make that call. It is. I mean, that shows you how Edmonton was built, where the scouts had a lot of say because they were out, they watched the guys play. So they're the guys responsible for Yari, Koff, Kevin Lowe, Gretz. I mean, they're, those are the guys that are responsible for bringing all those guys into Edmonton. Yeah, man. Oh, just an absolute wealth of talent, all those names you just rattled off. Yeah, not a bad group of guys. A little bit of talent, too. So, Do you remember going to uh, your draft 1981 uh, in Montreal? I do. Actually, only because I, rem I remember I had the same agent as Al McInnes at the time, and Al and I roomed together. At the draft? At the draft. Really? So yeah. it, how did that work? They, it, were your parents not there then? Nope. Nope. I'd gone out by myself and Al was there by himself. So our agent paid for the room and we just happened to be roommates. Really? That's crazy. And you end up playing, well, I mean, obviously you play with Al a couple different times internationally and then uh, with the Blues. Yeah. They actually sat side by side in St. Louis. So all the years of playing against them in Calgary and everything turned out to be a pretty good friendship. Absolutely. That's really cool. Uh, before the draft, did you guys have what they have now with the combine and uh, the team meetings and, you know, did the Oilers sit and talk to you and get to know you and kind of quiz you up or was that not non-existent back then? I, very little did you ever hear. I mean, when I went out there, you hear rumors of teams talking and stuff, but you never really met with any teams. So when you get to the draft, you just sat there and hoped that your name got called. Was you it, had no idea. Was it in the rink? It was in the forum. It was in the forum. So it was pretty cool. Was there, uh, you know, geez, you watch the draft today and it, 
it's packed. There's tons of people everywhere. Was it the same kind of hoopla back then? There's still tons of people in the rink, but a lot of it were fans and such. So it, it was a neat experience. What did, you, what did you think about getting called eighth overall? It was pretty cool, but it was cooler to go back home. I mean, I moved away from home to go play junior. So if I'm going to turn pro, I get to move back home to turn pro. So that was the coolest part. Did you, did you have any inkling? Well, I mean, you, you kind of, there was no talk of teams, but you know, you, you're going through the list. Did you have any idea you'd go top 10? Did you like, was there any I thought no like I might, I might end up with Hartford. I might end up with Montreal or I might end up somewhere. I had no idea. I mean, and at that time, I think John Davidson was probably one of the only goalies that had been drafted in the top 10. So it wasn't something I even thought about. It's pretty crazy to watch then now how kids are, you know, put under the microscope about two years out of their draft class. Oh, I know. It's amazing how far deep into their history they go. They watch them when they're 15, 16 years old now. So it's, it's become more scientific than it was back then. You know, you're a guy that has records, you know, like 79 games in a season. And I think that year you played, you know, everything combined. It was like over 100 games and, you know, like longest streak of 76 straight starts and just silly things to really think about now, Grant. Like, I mean, those things just don't happen. Um, do you ever think, man, if, if they would have had some of the – minds today and said listen grant you can only play 50 we don't care what you want to do you're only playing 50 your body might have held up better uh, i don't know if the body would have held up better i mean i enjoyed playing the more work i got the better i felt so to me i didn't really worry about the body at some point i'll grow old and pay a price for it but at that time i didn't care so unfortunately somebody nobody mentioned that at 50 everything starts to hurt so it's at the time, I had no problem sacrificing the body for it. Well, man, you know, I watched uh, on YouTube. You can just find, well, and now they've been replaying everything, right? So we get to watch all your guys' old games. And, man, it was tough back then. And the amount of abuse you took between clappers off the helmet with that old school rate stuck to your face or getting run over uh, body checks and listening to the color commentators just talk like, well, you can, you can hit a goalie as long as your intent isn't to injure. And, you know, now you can't even, you can't even, you know, if the wind knocks him over, it's a penalty. So it's crazy to think of how much abuse your body must have taken. Uh, you're running the body through the mill pretty good, but at the same time, there's no greater job in the world. So that, that was the fun part of it. It's, you don't really worry about that. You just go out and play. And it was fun to be out there and play. Did you ever have to, you know, like, did the doctors have to work on you continually? Because, I mean, you had shoulder surgeries. You had bad knees. You had, you had a bunch of different things going on throughout part of your or most of your career. Did you ever have to, you know, they got to stick me full of something right before a game to make sure it'll work in the playoffs? Yeah, we had some things done to a shoulder in Edmonton. My, what was it, first year, I'd ripped the shoulder out of the socket. So we had a little glue put together in there. Uh, St. Louis, I, I got to be good friends with all the trainers. St. Louis, when I wrecked the knee, come playoff time, we had to have a little work done on that so we could get out and play. You just, just things you do to play. I don't know, man. That just listening, I go, most people aren't made that way. Uh, 
we get a fairly strong mind. I mean, if you have to freeze something to play, you freeze something to play. That's just the way it was back then. Did you have uh, a guy who took you under your, under your wing or under his wing, um, like a mentor? Uh, you know what? Ronnie Lowe was a great roommate to have my first year. I mean, when I went to training camp, they had Andy Moog, who had just come off a great series with Montreal. They had Ronnie Lowe. They had Gary Edwards. They had Eddie Mio. So they had a lot of guys with NHL experience. And I was lucky enough to get to room with Ronnie and spend a lot of time with Ronnie. So it's kind of like having a mentor that you could talk to. What did he teach you then? Not to take everything seriously, just to let it bounce off your back. That if you have a bad game, it's going to happen again sooner or later. So don't worry about it. Just play on. <laughs> well, you guys played, I think I heard, uh, I can't remember if it was yourself or I'm pretty sure it was you. We said, we play a type of defense and it's offense. And every highlight I see of you stopping the puck, I swear it's like a three-on-one, a breakaway. Heck, the first year, I think you guys win the cup, or maybe the second year, uh, there must have been like three different penalty shots. And I'm going, like, this just doesn't happen anymore. Like, the, the type of hockey back then was, especially with the Oilers, run and gun. What, was that, that was, just enjoyable? I thought it was great. I mean, we played a freewheeling style where – we knew we were going to score some goals, but we also knew we were going to give up some chances. So, Victoria, when I played junior, we did the same thing. We played a pretty freewheeling style where we knew we were going to give up some shots. So, I quite enjoyed it. You think that was the best era then in hockey? I mean, right now, so much of it is, man, it, it, it is tight. It is systems. It is, I mean, there's never been more skill in the game. I don't think anybody can argue that. And speed, for that matter. But the way the game is played, there just isn't 15 breakaways or 15 three-on-ones in a game. It's not back and forth. It's more a defensive system style of a game. I think it was more fun back then. I think, if anything, I mean, yeah, there was more hooking, more holding, the odd fight. But the game was more complete. You had the physicality. You had the run-and-gun offenses. There wasn't as much defensive – there wasn't as many defensive systems in place. So guys could freewheel, and the talent got to show itself off. Heck, after your guys' stint there winning cups, I think every coach in the NHL is going, how do we slow these guys down? It probably spurred on um, figuring out systems to help, you know, stop what you guys have been doing. There was a lot of that. You saw a lot of teams that would put four guys back and just have one guy forecheck, but it gave us a chance to attack with speed. So – I mean, our, John Muckler and Glenn Sather were very good about creating offense. And there was a lot of ways, different ways of doing it. What was one of the, the things that sticks out about having Sather and, and Muckler as coaches for you? Uh, how much fun they let us have. I mean, yeah, we had to play defense. You had to be responsible. But they didn't take any of the creative, creativity away from the guys. They wanted guys to be creative. And they wanted the offense. So it freed our guys up to just play. Yeah, it's, you know, you've had multiple, like a very different group of coaches, with, whether we're talking Sather or uh, John Muckler. You had Pat Burns, I think, for a little tiny stint in Toronto before you were out of I there. Did. did you have Barry Melrose as well in L.A.? I had Barry for a little bit in L.A. too. You had Mike Keenan. You had Brian Sutter. Like you had a full spectrum of different guys was there were Sather and Muckler your favorites because of how they were you know um 
player coaches or did other guys, you know, I guess have their time with you as well? You know what? I was lucky to play for all good coaches. I, yeah, Edmonton, we had a lot of fun because it was running gun. When I got to traded to Toronto, we had Tommy Watt there. So it was the first coach I'd had where he taught defensive systems. So for me, you got to learn. Then they bring in Pat Burns, you got to learn again. So everywhere I went, you learn different things from different coaches. Well, what was it like having uh, five guys back or not getting breakaways towards the later end of your career? What was it like then not having to worry about the three-on-one after three-on-one? You know what? I had fun both ways. I mean, obviously, if you're getting four or five goals for every night, there's a lot more room for mistakes. But as it tightens up, the odd man rushes get cut down, but you're still getting lots of work. So it, I enjoyed all of it. When you're first drafted by the Oilers, and you, I've heard different, um, whether it's Gretzky or Lower Coffee, talk about uh, treating everybody like they're family. And when they first come, bringing them into their house and and if they needed a car they're giving them a car and they're they're finding ways to bring them into the fold who is the guy that made you feel a part of the oilers when you first got drafted well wayne was the first person i met at the draft really and and from that day forward everybody got treated as family so he's the first one i met then i spent some time with our radio announcer rod phillips flying back from the draft and you see glenn you see all the different guys in the dressing room and right from day one, you get treated like family. And that was the great part about Edmonton. Who instilled that? Or Dino? Like, where did that come from? That was Glenn Taylor. And that was the culture he wanted to instill, was that your family. You're going to spend more time with the guys than you will with your actual family over the course of a year. So you want the guys to be able to play for each other. You want everybody to get along. And that's what makes a good team. That's uh, that's really, really interesting because you think, and, may, and maybe other teams have done this, and you've experienced multiple, multiple teams, but it seems really unique to that group. Uh, the stories you hear of, you know, the car, uh, inviting them in to stay at your house, that kind of thing, everybody treating everybody like family, so to speak. Um, you'd think everybody would take that model and run with it, but it must not be easy to replicate. It's not. It only takes one guy to ruin it. So that was the other thing, that if you didn't fit in in that mode in Edmonton, then you got replaced right away. So it was something that you had to buy into, and we all loved it. Was that something then Sather could feel or something the guys would tell him about? Because I think we've, for hockey players, you've all been on the team where somebody just doesn't fit. And you can feel it. If it ain't right away, it's pretty soon and you you get it and it kind of feels like a little bit of a sore spot so is that something say they're identified like immediately or is that something the leaders of the group went and talked to them about I think it was both I and mean, the players could sense it but I think the coaches sensed it before the players I mean they kept a pretty close eye on the guys and see how guys interacted with each other and they were big on that family atmosphere yeah that's just it's so cool though. You know, one of the things that uh, makes your group special is all the talent, like all the talent in the world is, I mean, the list of hall of famers and uh, all-star games and the cups and, you know, just uh, competing for Canada and how many of those guys were on those teams, but uh, how tight knit you guys were is so cool. That just doesn't happen every day. No. And that's the fun part. The guys are all still close knit even to today. 
and you get lifetime friends out of the deal, which I think is the best part of the whole thing. I mean, yeah, it was great to play in the NHL. It's great to win Stanley Cups, but it's the lifetime friends that you take out of it that are the highlight of everything. Now, in your first year, I assume that uh, on the road, there must have been uh, shoe checks, that type of uh, funny business at, uh, at the uh, mealtime. Did you ever get shoe checked, in your, shoe checked in your first year? Oh, yeah. Everybody goes through that their first year. But <laughs> fortunately for me, they targeted coaches once in a while. So they kind of leave goalies alone because we're supposed to be a little different. <laughs> Are you a little different? <laughs> no, we're, I, yeah, I'm different because I was normal. So, <laughs> she never got shoe checked then. Uh, once or twice. Was there? What was your guys's? Uh, what ha if you got shoe checked? Was there anything uh, that happened, or was it you just lifted up the shoe and you just kind of embarrassment? It just bit the bullet with a little embarrassment. So nothing major. Your first year, uh, you lose your first game, but then you rattle off. 23 in a row. Did you think, man, I got this figured out? No, I just played to survive every day. I mean, as a, you're an 18, 19 year old kid, all you're doing is playing to survive. So you didn't really worry about what was going on down the road. You just worried from game to game. When you look back uh, those first couple of years, is there anything that sticks out that was like, man, I didn't see this coming or, uh, this is unbelievable, that kind of thing? Uh, my second year, I struggled at the beginning. I mean, I had shoulder surgery that summer and didn't get to put the time in that I needed. So I get off to a slow training camp, and you get off to a slow training camp, it's hard to catch up. And I never did catch up. I probably kept caught up about February, my second year. So you realize that you've got to be good right out of the gate. Well, you'd had your, uh, in between your first and second year, you'd have uh, sh shoulder surgery, correct? Yeah, I got glued back together. So not, not a good first summer. Did, did that, did you ever, I don't know, think of changing the way you play? I, I don't know how your body broke down. Like, was it the bumps and the bruises and, or the amount of playing time? D uh, did you ever figure out why your, you know, your body, so to speak, kept breaking down over time? They just, I threw my body around and didn't care. More than anything is it, it just gave it 100%. And if the body let go, the body let go. I didn't worry about it. That's interesting. Uh, I would think, uh, you know, I'd, I'd heard a story about you with Mike Keenan when you're in St. Louis and you're on your stretch of playing every game known to man. And he just said, I'm going to talk to you once a month and, you just tell me if you're good to go. And whether you had bumps or bruises, you just kept playing. I did, but I was lucky in St. Louis. We brought in a guy by the name of Bob Kersey, who worked with the U.S. track team and such. And I spent a lot of time stretching with him and working out with him. So the, the body got a lot of maintenance in St. Louis. Did you have, um, you know, everybody's got a, a goalie coach or some specialized uh, group. Back then when you first started, did you have anything like that? Me is my own goalie coach. So when I first turned pro, you figured it out on your own. That was just the way you learn the game. You learn how to read the game. You learn the movements of the game. And you figure it out on your own. So what if you have a bad game or bad three games? Did you have somebody you'd call and say, listen, I don't know what I'm doing. Did you have somebody to bounce things off of? That's where Ronnie Lowe came in handy is you got a roommate to talk to. So he'd been through it. He played. 
he played for a bunch of years so I could talk to him. And then we brought Andy Mogan and Andy and I could talk. So that's just how you learn the game. Oilers got to be, you know, they had a, well, Andy Moog was, he only would have been what, a year older than you, two years max, I would think. Yeah, I, think I think Andy's, oh, what, two years older than I am at the most? What I'm getting at is super young goaltenders um, that were both extremely good early on. Yeah, I mean, they sent Andy down my first year when Andy probably played well enough to stay there, but they kept Ronnie because Ronnie was the experienced guy. So it did give me somebody to talk to. And then Andy came in the next year. What was it like having Andy Moog to battle with every single step of the way, knowing that, I mean, if you faltered, and I mean, the Oilers used both of you guys all through out it until Moog was uh, traded. Um, what was it like having a guy there to push you every step of the way? It was awesome. It probably made us as good as, the reason we were as good as we were is because we pushed each other. You had to have good practices to play, so it forced you to be good every day. You played bad in the game, guess what? You knew you weren't playing the next game, so it always pushed you to be better. Yeah, it, it, that is something probably uh, needed in all aspects of an NHL team is guys there to compete and push you to make sure you're playing the top of your game and taking no nights off. As soon as you're just given a spot, I assume uh, it's pretty easy not to come there ready to roll every single time. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of old school. I don't think anything's given. You shouldn't have to go out and earn it. How about the first year you're in the playoffs against L.A.? The miracle of Manchester. Yeah. My first playoff run wasn't very good. Like. <laughs> First NHL playoff game ever, I lose 10-8. No empty Ten, net goals. 10-8. 10-8. Then we win. What did we win? We win 3-2. We win 3-2. And then we blow a 5-0 lead. So lose 6-5 in overtime. Come back home, lose 7-4. So I didn't think I was long for the NHL after the first playoff run. You thought you were toast? Yeah, I, the confidence took a little bit of a browbeating in that first playoff. And then I got off to the bad start the second year, so that didn't make it any better. What was the group of guys like after that L.A. series when you – well, you had them in a stranglehold. You know, you dropped the first game, but you win the next two. You got them down 5 nothing going into the third. You blow it. You lose game five. What was the group you like in the dressing room? I think it just made us focus harder. I mean, that was the one thing – we get a pretty smart group of guys. And the fact that we'd lost that series, we let it get away from us, just made us focus that much harder the next year. You know, most teams, I think, quote uh, the Oilers of that time on how you win. At first, you got to lose the championship in order to get over the hump to win it. And I think, you know, your guys' lessons in the first couple of years, losing to L.A. the way you did, and then the next year in the finals, um, getting swept four, uh, I think it's – you guys always talk about walking by the Islanders' dressing room after you lose. Yeah, and they paid a bigger price than we did. And when you realize that, then you know you've got another step to go. So we lose to L.A. We realized we had to be better, more consistent, go out, play better, more consistent. Thought we were there. We got to the finals. Still another step to climb that we didn't realize we had to climb yet. So you lose to the Islanders. You go into the next year realizing that there's still a long ways to go.
What was playing those Islanders like? Because they that was their fourth in a row. You know what? It was fun because they were the king of the hill. So obviously you want to knock off the king of the hill. And for me, it was fun to watch Billy Smith because at that time he was the money goalie that everybody talked about. So to get a chance to play against Billy was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah, that man, they just – back then you could keep guys around um, a lot of years, the same core group, and the Islanders proved it, and then the Oilers proved it. Um, you ever think they'll ever have, you know, in the salary cap era, you think there's ever a chance that you could have a group of guys stay together and pull off something like um, you guys did? I know Pittsburgh, uh, you know, over a span, they were close. They won back-to-back. Chicago – uh, kind of over a term there it was close but to win you know four and five years will that ever happen again not in the salary cap era I mean you're going to get teams that are going two or three year runs but then everybody wants to be paid so in the salary cap era it's going to be harder and harder especially if the cap happens to flatten this year it's every year is going to get harder and harder to get a team in underneath that cap hmm Flipping back to um, Miracle on Manchester for a second, I read that the LA Kings didn't, uh, the ownership didn't believe they'd make game five. So they hadn't booked them a flight to Edmonton. Were they on the same flight as you guys? Or did your chartered plane? We shared a charter back. I think they sat in the back and we sat in the front of the plane. How was that? We didn't know any better. So it's just the way it worked out. Yeah, you you say that, but you guys just that must have been a quiet plane ride. You got some yeah. like you got some big boys on your team at that point in time. Like if anyone said a word, that plane might have been rumbling all the way to Edmonton. You know, it was pretty peaceful, and if I remember right, I think the officials even flew back with us. So it it's a big plane, held lots of bodies. It just made it a little more entertaining. <laughs> Did that ever happen ever again? Where you're on the no, same I, plane as, as the team you're playing? I think that was the only time it ever happened. It's unbelievable. I, I almost couldn't believe it when I read it. I'm like, well, man, that's got to be an uncomfortable way to board a plane with uh, the opposing team sitting right beside you. Yeah, when you're 18 years old, it doesn't really matter. You're just happy to get to the next game. You're happy to be on the plane. Yeah. You're part of that team that's getting on the plane. You're good. <laughs> How about the first year you guys win it? What was, what was, you know, getting back to the finals, seeing the same New York Islanders, what was that like? Well, for us, it was a continuation of climbing the mountain where they were still the best. So we looked forward to playing them again. I mean, we thought we were the better team. We were obviously the younger team. And it was a chance for us to prove ourselves. I mean, they ran over us the year before, so we had to prove to ourselves that we could beat them. And was it, you know, from game one onwards, did you just, you just knew? After game one, we knew. I mean, once we managed to go into their building and beat them one nothing, and they, I think they blew us out the second game 7-1. But we knew after game one that we were good enough that we could beat them. When you're in... You lose game two. Who's the guy in the locker room? Or maybe it's a collective group. But was there a guy that just 
stood up and said, boys, we got this. Just calmed everybody down. No, I think everybody knew it. I mean, as a group, we knew that we'd gotten to that spot. We were capable of beating them. And we just had to bite the bullet and play a little bit better. So there was no one guy that kind of had the, so to speak, reins of the group that could just, you know. Well, we had lots of leadership. You had guys like Gratz, Mass, at that time, Lee Fogelin, where nobody really, we didn't doubt ourselves. That was the biggest thing is there was no doubt. And the year before, there may have been a little bit of doubt, but the doubt was gone by then. I kind of forgot all about Lee Fogelin. He would have been the captain uh, when you at that time. Yeah. Yep. What was what was having Lee like uh, as a, a captain, a kind of a role model, so to speak? A great veteran presence. I mean, with a young group of guys, you've got to have good veterans. And my first couple of years, we had Lee was there, Patty Hughes, guys like that that were a little bit older that had seen Dave Lumley, that had been through the league a little bit. So we always had a good group of veterans around the young guys. When you guys win, you finally have that monkey off your back, so to speak. You win, you're hoisting the cup. What was the first feeling of lifting that trophy up like? You know what? There's nothing better. As a kid, you dream of winning a Stanley Cup. So the fact that you actually get a chance to do it, by the time you're done celebrating and having some fun, all of a sudden you're in training camp again. So you really don't get the opportunity to enjoy it as much as you think you do. Go back to 1984 then, game five. You walk in the dressing room. What are the boys listening to before the big game? Was, the, was there a song or something that sticks out from that time? Uh, you know what? I was in the training room. I'd wrecked a shoulder in game three. So <laughs> we were getting remodeled again. <laughs> well, that was Pat LaFontaine, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I got out handling a puck where I probably shouldn't have been and got caught up in the traffic and managed to separate his shoulders. So. Caught up in the traffic is an understatement. He ran you clear over. Well, he got tied up with, I forget who was back with Chucky at that time, but I got caught probably where I shouldn't have been. Did that, uh, you know, everybody likes Grant. You're like one of the nicest human beings ever. And you probably, from what I've seen, don't get mad that often. But at that point, were you ready to, to lose your mind a little bit? No, because you're worried about the shoulder trying to heal so you can play the next night. So no time to even really get mad. You're a little frustrated that you can't play. And that's the hardest part is that you know that you can't play. But the trainers do everything they can. You try everything you can to get a chance to play, and it just wasn't going to happen. So that part was a little frustrating. But at the same time, you hope the next year you get that opportunity. And how about the next year? The next year, we got to training camp, and Glenn said, told us it was going to be harder to repeat than it was to win the first time. So we found out the hard way that it's a lot harder because now you're playing, what, 80 games at that time? So you're playing 80 hard games that year because everybody wants to beat the defending champion. So then you get a bigger respect for how hard it was for the Islanders because every single game is hard. And then you roll into the playoffs, and away you go again. So you roll into the playoffs. You're walking into the dressing room. What's, the, what's got the boys going? What are they listening to? Uh, what did we listen to back then? I don't even remember what we listened to back then. And I know we played ping pong right up until about 30 minutes before we got dressed. So, really? But we're a pretty laid-back dressing room. Well, and the, the stories always 
talk about you golfing the, the day before games. Off, off days. I played golf in the off days to relax. But not like 18 holes. It was a lot, was it not? Uh, most times it was 18. Maybe I'd squeeze in 27, maybe a couple more. But <laughs> you're, you're riding in a cart, so you're not really worried about being tired. What was it about golf before uh, game day? That just time away from the rink, time away from everything? Yeah, it's time away from the rink. It's time away from the media where you get a chance to clear your head and just relax. That's Physic Physically, your body's going to be tired, so you've got to be fresh mentally. And that's the part that people don't realize is you got to clear your head and get away from the game. Otherwise, the game will beat you up. So you went to golf, which for most of us can absolutely frustrate us when we shank a ball into the old bushes or me, I have a magnet to the water. I like to find water holes. <laughs> that never got to you. You just uh, laughed it off and enjoyed that. When you're in the middle of the playoffs, it's a lot easier to laugh it off. <laughs> Did the... <sighs> You know, the media wasn't and isn't what, it, you know, back then it isn't even remotely close to the social media monster that it is now and the national <laughs> coverage you guys get. But when you were golfing, I assume when that story broke, you were getting all sorts of questions. Oh, we had lots of questions about it as to why, how could they let you do this? How could you let you do that? I was, hey, that's just my way of relaxing and I'm going to go about my business and Glenn let me. Never said a bad word about it. And if you go out and perform, guess what? Nobody really cares. Yeah, when you're winning, no matter how winning, yeah, winning, winning gives you more freedom. <laughs> Did you ever get used to having sitting in the dressing room and having like I don't know what the high point was for media guys around you, but I would assume Toronto was probably the high time. But did you ever get used to that? Was that something that just was enjoyable, not enjoyable? For me, at a young age, I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I like to keep to myself, and the media always want to ask questions. So I was pretty quiet my first seven, eight years where I didn't say boo. So as, as you get older and you play more, you get used to it. But I was, through most of my career, I was still pretty quiet. So what's changed as you've gotten older? Because, I mean, like I alluded to at the start, like you've done – I was saying to the wife before uh, I came on tonight uh, – I like to do some homework and, and, and listen to some guys. And if I can read a book, I'll read a book and I'll, I'll try and do as much homework as humanly possible. And when I started searching you, I was like, man, I don't know if I got enough hours in the day to, to get through every podcast you've been on or interview you've had or video. I mean, when you're a top 100 player in the NHL, there's a lot there, but in the beginning, there isn't too many interviews towards the end now. Uh, or where we are currently, I should say the end, there's been a ton. So what's changed over the career? Have you just become easier with the mic? More comfortable? Yeah. You get easier with it. You get more comfortable with yourself more than anything. When you're playing, you're just wrapped up in playing, and it's just an extra distraction, or at least I found it an extra distraction. So I tried to avoid it as much as possible, whereas now I've got nothing else going on. I'm playing golf, hanging out doing a lot of nothing so and people are always curious so I have no problem sitting talking to people now where uh, where are you hanging your hat these days I'm down in Palm Desert California I enjoying that you know what right now it's a little warm but other than that it's good it's golf heaven what is a little warm uh we played I played golf with my wife yesterday I think we we're about 111 okay. it's a little warm <laughs> We're not hot yet, but we're warm. What will it get to? 
uh, somewhere along this summer, it'll probably get in the high 118, 119, maybe touch 120. I'm like a and polar bear. Yes, like and a yes, polar I'll still bear. play. Yeah, you'll play. <laughs> I'm like a polar bear. I can't handle that. I mean, you, you grew up here, uh, a Spruce Grove uh, originally. Um, yep. The weather here is not 120 by any stretch of the imagination, even in the summertime. No, it's a little cooler up there, but at the same time, it's an old body. It likes the heat now. That's the one thing. You get up in the morning, nothing's stiff, nothing hurts, and that's not a bad thing. Oh, man, that, that heat. Is it a dry heat at least? It's a dry. We have no humidity. I mean, if it's really humid right now, it might be 10 12%. And then do you own a golf course down there, or you just work on a golf course? I represent a golf course. I'm actually the director of golf and court jester, whatever else they need. And what's, what's the golf course, Grant? It's a place called Desert Dunes. It's actually owned by a group from Winnipeg. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, the Canadian owned. That's, that's pretty cool. Next time uh, listeners are down that way, I'm sure if they drop you a line, you can, they can harass you on Twitter about how much fun they're having. Oh, most definitely. I mean, we ran into a gentleman the other day that asked me a question on Twitter if I'd be around the golf course. I told him, yeah, I'm there pretty much every day. So he came over and said hi. You probably get a lot of that, I assume, uh, coming from this area and how much hard, or how many hardcore Oiler fans are around. I mean, you've played in some of the most hardcore fan bases. I assume wherever you go, you, you still get tracked down. Uh, you know what? That's the fun part is there's so many good diehard hockey fans. And over the course of the winter here, we have a ton of Canadians that come down. So there's a great hockey base down here in the winter, whether it be Jets fans, Flames fans, Oilers fans good amount of Canucks fans. So you've always got somebody to talk hockey with. You, uh, you played in the heyday of Canadian hockey teams being good. Uh, you mentioned a couple, the, the Flames, the Jets were good. Even the Canucks were pretty good back in the day. Um, what was the Battle of Alberta like? For a guy who was too young to remember the glory days, um, it kind of got reignited there a little bit here in the last couple of years with Cassian and all that we were on pace to maybe see a battle of Alberta in the first round I know every hockey fan this side of the border and in Alberta was disappointed when things went the way they have gone so far but what was playing in those series like because the Flames were no slouch they were a damn good hockey team oh no they couldn't have played in a better era for that I mean if you look at the Smythe division back then probably three of the top five teams in the league were all in our division you had our team, you had Calgary and Winnipeg. And unfortunately, in the matter of two rounds, two of those teams are gone. So if you got out of your own division, you knew you had a chance of winning a Stanley Cup. The hardest part was getting out of your own division. So there was a lot of games that had a eh, little hatred in them. And it was, they were a little testy. <laughs> testy. It, it's a nice way of putting it. But it's funny, for as much as you hate playing against those guys, it's not so much hate, it's respect. Because you knew how good they were and how hard they wanted to beat you. You wanted to beat them just as badly. So it's, it's funny. I've got a lot of the guys that played against in Calgary that I'm good friends with. And it's just out of mutual respect. There's something about playing the best that gets you up for a game. There is. You always want to play against the best. And I think that's the fun part of competition is – you always want to play against people that are better than you or as good as you. 
Was it pretty crazy to have them like two hours away in Alberta though? I mean, the buildings must have been absolutely insane. Well, they were because people travel back and forth for the games too. And then you've got a town in between called Red Deer where half the fans would be Oilers fans, half the fans would be Flames fans. So the whole province was a little hockey crazy. It still is. Yeah, it's uh, – I can't speak for yourself, but I assume it was a great place to play. I mean, not only coming home, but just uh, – did you enjoy how much the city rallied around the team? I love playing at home. I mean, some guys have a hard time playing at home because there's pressure to be good at home. But I thought it was fun. And you get to play in front of friends, family, and you make a lot of friends along the way. So I really enjoyed playing at home. You know, in your career, you didn't have too many times uh, where, or even at the beginning, where you got sent down to the minors. But in year two, you did. You got sent down to the Moncton Alpines for a short stint. Do you I, made a little, well, I made a little 12-game stop down there. What was that? Did was that a kind of a wake up call, or did you enjoy your time down there? What was the Moncton experience like? I actually really enjoyed it because it came after a time where one I wasn't playing bad, and it got to a point where from the playoffs through to that point of the year, I'd started to get frustrated. And of course, when you get frustrated, things tend to get worse. So I played a game against Washington. I think it was an afternoon game at home against Washington and was awful and fans weren't really happy. I wasn't really happy with them and probably said a couple of things I shouldn't have. So it was a chance to get away from Edmonton for a little bit and have a little reset. I think the comment you made to the fans was I, the I wrong may have called them jerks. Yeah, <laughs> I may have called them with an expletive tossed in somewhere along the way. But yeah, it wasn't, it was not one of the highlights of my career. What did Sather say to you when, when he sent you down? I talked to him the next morning and he told me that calling the fans jerks is not really going to help you at all. And that he was going to send me down so that I could just reset, get away, just go play, relax, play, just reset everything. And I went down and Mess's dad was coaching down there at that time. So I, yeah, and I played for him part of a year in junior. So it was a chance to just reset everything and get comfortable again. Did, uh, in your span with the Oilers, was there any other superstar uh, that got sent down to Moncton then? Like, were they at a stint? I think Mess went down for a stint at some point. Samantha got sent down for, the, for a day or two. Everybody kind of gets a reset once in a while. To send down Messier is a, I don't know, you know, I just think of today's world. I can't think of back then, but that, I mean, that's a big name to send down for. Uh, well, I think Mess got sent down the year before I got to Edmonton. I think it was. was Might've been the WHA when he got sent down. But everybody gets that journey. Whoa. <laughs> Messier, wow, I just, man, the list of legends that you got to play with, you're, you're one of them. But Messier was a guy, you know, everybody remembers the New York Rangers where he guarantees the win. Um, what was – I mean, it's just a collective group, but the uh, collection of leadership in your dressing room is craziness. Like it's, oh, it's phenomenal. I mean, that's the best part is you've got the best player in the game who leads by example. You've got Mess, who's probably the best vocal leader in sport. 
You've got guys like Lee Fogland that were there. You've got Koff. I mean, we had so many guys that on any given night could step up and lead you. So you get a whole room full of leaders. Was it just, you know, when, when you're sitting in the game and they're on attack, are you just sitting there admiring? Yeah, I get the best seat in the house to watch. I mean, one, I get to watch it every day in practice, and then you get to see it in a game. It was fun to watch. I mean, yeah, we we're going to have some odd man rushes and stuff, but it was just fun to watch them attack. My oldest brother had mentioned uh, Kelly Rudy uh, broke the game up into five-minute stints uh, to kind of for mental focus. Did you ever do anything like that to uh, keep mentally on top of your game? No, you try and when the puck hits center ice, you try and relax when it gets center and goes the other way. When it's starting to come back, you start to refocus when it hits their blue line. So we attacked a lot. So I get a lot of time to just kind of refocus and relax a little bit. And you try not to stress over anything. Who was the guy on the other team that whenever he picked up the puck, you were like, oh, man, this guy's good? Al McKinnis you had to watch for. And he could shoot the puck well enough that the minute he hit center, if you're not paying attention, he could actually beat you from center. So you had to actually pay close attention when he had the puck. Really, a defenseman. A defenseman. But he shot the puck that well that you actually had to pay attention the minute he got it. Interesting. Was he a guy then, you know, with your guys, uh, the small equipment back then, was he the guy then that when it hit you, it hurt? Oh, it hurt. There's no question. You didn't want him, you would charge out at him to hope he missed you. I mean, <laughs> the more aggressive you can be, the more they want to shoot around you. So I tried to be out as far as I could, enough that you're not getting run into, but enough that they would try and shoot pucks around you instead of hit you with it. Back when you were a kid, why did you, why was a goaltender, why did you get drawn into it? Like, it was a lot of Equipment pain. was cool. Equipment, yeah, the equipment was, cool. was cool. They didn't mention the pain part of it, but the equipment was cool. So, and you got to play all the time. So I thought that was a novel concept. Did you have, did you wear a mask when you first started? I did, just an old helmet and cage. Kids, you, kid, as kids, you had to. So what type of mask did you like then? Did you like, like the, the old, old, you like the old? I love the old, oh, I love the old full face mask. How many I heard you say it was like getting hit in the head with a baseball bat? Yeah, you tried not to get hit in the head, but they were fun to wear. They looked good. So well, were, I, were, oops, that's why you have good hands. <laughs> you have good hands to catch the puck. You don't really want to get hit in the head. I will say this, uh, TSN, I think it was TSN replayed, um, Canada Cup and you wearing the old mask with the Canada jersey and it looked pretty uh, lethal, like unbelievable. It blended in well. What was, uh, what was playing for Canada like? You played from several different times. You know what? It's awesome to play for your country. I mean, as much fun as it is winning a Stanley Cup, it's just as much fun to win for your country. So Canada Cup in 84 was a lot of fun. 87 was fun. The World Championships in 89 were fun. So it's, it's always cool to represent your country. Is there anything that sticks out from those, those tournaments, the, those times of playing, playing for Canada? Just how good the teams were. And you're looking at a collection of the best players in the game, and you're playing against the best players in the game. So the competition was fast, and it was fun. And it was a lot like we played in Edmonton. It was very offensive. You got to play all those games too, didn't you? 
I got to play all the games, which was kind of a nice bonus. It would have been the, the first time um, you probably gotten a witness up close, uh, Mario Lemieux. In practice, you get to see how good Mario was with a puck and how smooth he was. That was the big thing is how smooth he was. And he could do things and made everything look easy. After, after being in Oiler practices and having all those talented guys uh, shoot on you, was it just an absolute pleasure to walk on uh, Canada's ice and have those guys shooting on you then? Yeah, practice just meant that you're going to have four lines that could score on you all the time. So it just stepped up things another notch. How about, uh, here was one I, I, I stumbled upon, the Rendezvous 87 in Quebec and Montreal. About that one. Yeah, that was a fun yeah, one too. You played the Soviets. NHL All-Stars played the Soviets. We did. Up what in Quebec was, City. Up in Quebec City, yeah. What was, like, I guess it, that's so foreign to us now. I mean, obviously the Soviets are the Russians now. And to have a country play the NHL All-Stars, I think we could probably all argue the only country now that could do it, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I would think is Canada. Canada could probably play the NHL All-Stars. I would say they probably could. But the Soviets are still pretty good. What was it, it would be interesting to play a European All-Star team against an NHL All-Star team. I think that would be a lot of fun. What was it like playing the Soviets? It was, it's a different brand of hockey, so it was a learning experience because they're more patient offensively. They don't always shoot the puck. They want to look for the perfect shot. So you'll have to learn to adapt to that style of game. Was there a ton of uh, eyes on that series, it being the All-Stars, the NHL, trying to best the Russians? Uh, you know what? You want to win. I mean, there's no question. You don't want to lose to a, another country. So as much fun as we were having, it was still all about winning. Another one that uh, I find absolutely fascinating is you played for, in the lockout year, you went with Gretzky and them uh, with the 99s. Could you talk, we, a, could you talk about that? We made the European vacation. Yeah, well, let's, let's chit chat about this for just a few minutes because, you know, I, I had all but forgotten about it. it it's, uh, and it's not something a lot of people remember because back then in a lockout. Everybody's you know, mad. <laughs> Everybody's mad, and, you know, they didn't televise the entire thing. And, you know, but the cast of characters you guys had go with you. I mean, even even the, the TV fair that you had go with you, I think a young Ron McLean was in that group. Like, you had a crazy amount of talent. You went and you played a, an IHL game against the Detroit Vipers. You played a few in Finland, you played a few in Sweden, and you played in Germany. No, we didn't play. We flew into Sweden to start with after we played in Detroit and then jumped on a plane after that game. And then we flew to Sweden and played a couple. What did we play? Three in Sweden, I think. Then we went and we played a couple in Finland. We played one in Switzerland. Went over and played a couple in Germany. So it, it was a fun tour. I have to assume the boys let loose on that trip. We had a good time especially as goalies, because we knew we were playing every second night. You knew you weren't going to play back-to-back. -back. So it was Kelly, Rudy, and myself. So you knew every second game you had a night off. So what were you guys doing? Just going out and having a good time? Or was there things set up? Yeah. Or any stories to share? 
you know what? Things were pretty set up, but the, you got you took your family with you, so you got a chance to go out and sightsee. And there was a lot of countries I hadn't been to. So you're spending, you play with guys from those countries. So you go out with the guys from those countries and they get to show you around a little bit. And you got to see the big giant ice surfaces over there, I would assume as well. You got to see some ice surfaces that you're not used to seeing. So puck handling took a new dimension over there. You'd get lost in a corner. <laughs> Did you guys like the big ice? Uh, you know what? It changed the angles a little bit. But once you got used to it, it was fun. And you knew you didn't have to go behind the net to handle a puck because if you get out there, you need a taxi to get back. Man, I, I would give anything to have video from all those games. That, like, that must have been just absolutely a treat to watch, let alone play in. Well, they were fun. I mean, that was the fun part about it is for as much as we were semi-serious about it, we still wanted to win. And you get that much talent, you're going to win most nights. Do you remember the call when Gretzky said, hey, I got this idea. I want to take it. We're going to have a lockout. Let's go over to Europe. Uh, you know what? What were we doing? I think the NHLPA had a three-on-three -three tournament in Toronto at that time. So some of us were playing in the three-on-three -three tournament. And they came up with that idea and – Forget who it was that asked. I think it might have been Mike Barnett. Or it might have even been Gretz that asked. And see if he wanted to go over. And it was like, well, might as well. get nothing else to do. So he put the group of guys together. I think we had one 20 or 30-minute practice, then played the Detroit Vipers, and then headed over. <laughs> you guys lose to the Detroit Vipers too, don't you? I think we did, actually. I think we lost 4-3 or something. I think, uh, I think you're correct. I, I remember reading that and I'm going, oh, they lost to the Detroit Vipers of the IHL. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of skating going on at that time. And most guys hadn't thrown equipment on for a while. So Did you, it, it, was an, it was an interesting time. You used, uh, I think I've heard you say this several times, is that you used the beginning of the season as training camp or a way to get back into shape. Did you, through the summers, were you not the guy that was, I don't know, running every day or pounding the weights or no I played baseball and that's how I kept in shape over the course of the summer and then when I was reminded that I wasn't being paid to play baseball then I took summers off to relax a little bit and let the body heal so training camps at that time were two and a half three weeks long I would use training camp to find my groove what do you, when you say you play baseball what do you mean you play baseball like senior men's baseball in Edmonton? So, yeah, competitive baseball. Yeah, the old Edmonton Tigers. Actually played for the Barhead Cardinals for a couple of years and then played for the Edmonton Tigers, then the Kensington 26ers for a little while. So, yeah, competitive baseball. What position did you play? Catcher. Well, yeah, I guess that would make sense. Yeah, it's not really giving your body a rest, but having a good time doing it. You were uh, – so you would get done winning a Stanley Cup and then you go play professional – well – Competitive ball? Oh, yeah. As soon as it was over. What did the guys on the team say? Well, they used to just laugh. I mean, I like to be an athlete. And if, the more sports you can play, the better athlete you are. So when hockey season ended, it was baseball season. Who finally put – was it Sather who finally put the kibosh on, on you playing baseball? Yeah, I sprained an ankle about two weeks before training camp one year. So I get, I get the speech about how I wasn't being paid to play – baseball so yeah I got retired 
How did you sprain your ankle? Just rounding a base or something? Yeah, trying to steal a base. <laughs> That's too good. I can't believe you were playing base, winning Stanley Cups one day, and in the summer you're playing competitive baseball. That's awesome. Yeah, usually within a couple of three weeks after we we're finished. I can't imagine being your coach or your GM and going, how do I get through to him that he can't be doing this? Well, the good news is they didn't say a whole lot until I decided to sprain an ankle. Then after that, it was, I got summoned. You know, as a child or as a kid, a young kid, one of my favorite memories of the Oilers was uh, the Boston Gardens with the fog and then the lights going out mid-game. That was game four, tied 3-3 in the second period, if I remember correctly. The lights go out. And then they end up postponing game four, replaying the entire game in Edmonton. In Edmonton. Bonus for us. As players, what was going on? Like, what did you think? We had no idea what was going on. I mean, that was the funny part. We probably sat at the rink for two hours waiting for the power to come back on. And then when the league finally stepped in and decided that it was enough, got on a plane the next day, flew back to Edmonton, and we played the next night. Were, were you sitting in the dressing room going, I don't know, trying to keep things light? Or what were you guys doing? Did you get all undressed? Yeah, you'd climb out of your gear. So otherwise, you'd have sweated to death. Because it was always hot in the old garden. So I think the biggest thing is you just tried to relax and try and figure out what was going on. It's got to be one of the strangest things that's happened in NHL history is the lights going out in a Stanley Cup game and then postponing the entire thing. For me, it was one of the strangest things. I mean, obviously, it was a bonus for us going back to Edmonton. What was it like winning the cup on home ice and carrying it around that place? Oh, it's awesome. I mean, we were lucky enough out of five cups, I think we won it at home four times. So you get a chance to celebrate with the fans and your family and everybody else. It's There's no better feeling. Yeah. I, man, Edmonton must have been – on fire back then keeps the city hopping a little bit <laughs> um what do you think of edmonton uh I, I don't know if they've officially announced it or if it's just a rumor but we'll go with possibly being uh one of the two cities for um the upcoming playoffs i think it's great it's great for the city i think what they say edmonton and toronto possibly so good for canada to have some playoff hockey back in canada but edmonton's a great city and unfortunately, fans won't be able to enjoy it. That's the sad part. But at the same time, everybody gets some hockey to watch. Yeah, some hockey to watch. I think we'd all be, you know, I don't know ecstatic. if I love it. We'd be ecstatic. I don't know if I'm going to love it through the summer months, to be honest, Grant. So I'm a diehard fan still, so I'd love to see some hockey. But I also want to make sure that it's safe for the players. Because the worst thing in the world that could happen is if they get started again and a couple of the guys get really sick. I think that that would be a big detriment to the game. So you got to make sure it's right for the players. Yeah, hundred percent. Can you imagine your your back? You got your shoulders about to fall off, but you're fighting through that because you're in the Stanley Cup Finals. And then you contract COVID, and they go, "Listen, Grant, you can't play Game Four because you got to sit out for two weeks." There's no there's no no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And it'd be like sl- it'd be a slow death. Absolutely. I just, I can't, the fans wouldn't understand it, but the player, 
be going, but coach, it'd be heart. It'd be heartbreaking. Put all that time in, and even though you're suffering through it, to say, hey, oh, by the way, you got a virus, you can't play. Would you want to play the way they're they're going to play then? If it was back in your day and era, and they said, listen, boys, this is this is the only way. It's this is if we're going to finish this season, this is how it has to be. And if you contract it, you just got to sit out. Is that the way you'd want it to go down, or would you rather the just we'll we'll start it next year? You'd have to see where they're at with making it safe for the guys. I think that's first and foremost. Get to worry about not only the guys but the guys' families. I think that's the biggest thing is you got to make sure it's safe for everybody because you don't want a guy catching it and taking it back to his family. So if you're going to anchor everybody in place, you've got to make sure it's safe. Which I think when you listen to their plan and, and what they got going on, I think they're doing everything in their power to make sure that it's as safe as possible. Yeah. I mean, I watch what the PGA Tour is doing right now. I mean, between the whoop straps and everything else that are – they've got a pretty closed bubble and they're still having the odd guy test positive. So I don't think it matters how safe you try and make it. There's always that possibility. Yeah. Uh-huh. You can't put anyone in a, an absolute bubble. It's, it's physically impossible. You know, you're going to be around people that you have no idea you even have it. Yep. And that's the tough part about this. What do you think about the 24 teams? You're a guy who, you know, is soaked in hockey lore and the way to win a Stanley Cup. What do you think about a 24th place team getting in uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs this year? I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, you're going to have some teams that probably wouldn't have made the playoffs. That Now you get a team like Montreal who gets a healthy carry price. They could go a long ways. You get a team like the Rangers that are now healthy. You've got a refreshed Lundquist. So you could run into some teams that probably wouldn't make the playoffs that all of a sudden could make a deep run into it. So it's going to be interesting. It's adding some new variables to it. Yeah, as we know, a hot goaltender can steal a series. And the first one's being a best of five. You don't have to run the gauntlet too far. And no, you got to be good for two games. That's right. And the scary part is, look at the teams that were good all year. You've had three months off now. How hard is it going to be to jumpstart those teams to get back going again? Well, you tell me how hard it would be to jumpstart the Edmonton Oilers uh, if you were in the middle of that mix. Our guys were pretty good at jumpstarting, so we'd have been fine. I mean, with Canada Cups, they usually started in August. So we hadn't done a whole lot before we rolled into the Canada Cups. So our guys were pretty good at jumpstarting, but some teams take a little longer than others. Oh, man. How, how was training camp for Canada Cup then? Hey, you know what? Two weeks of trying to get yourself in shape. So <laughs> That's awesome. But that was the fun part. I mean, once you got named to the team, then it was the crash course of getting yourself in shape, getting ready to play. Uh, was it like two-a-days, or was it – did you change how you ate, or was it, you know, workout in the morning, hard practice? Was there a, a structure to it for that two, three weeks? No, the – the practices were usually high tempo and there's a little bit of working out that went on afterwards. And if you needed a little extra, you stayed on the ice, needed extra with the guys. August 9th, 1988. I'm sure you get asked about this all the time, but in saying that in hockey history, Wayne Gretzky getting traded is a significant date. Do you remember where you were uh, on that day? 
I do. I was out at Bob Cole's golf tournament out in Newfoundland. Marty was, so, was, was Marty out there too? Marty was out there with me. So it was a, it's one of the strangest days. How's that? Because we never thought Gretz would ever be traded. You thought it was a, probably a practical joke. Yeah. I mean, we didn't take it seriously at first. So, and then when it did happen, it was an eye opener to the team. What was walking back into the dressing room the next season like not having that guy sitting in there? I think it was a little bit of shock for everybody, but at the same time, you want to prove that you're still a good hockey team. So I think we had an okay year, but not a great year. In 89, I think we actually lost to Gretz in LA. So I think we lost to them in seven games. So it was just a matter of, it was an eye opener for us. And then in 90, we just knew we had to be better if we were going to win again. And we thought we were good enough still. Well, and in 90, uh, you talk about it being the lowest point of your career when you get suspended from the NHL. Care that to, summer. Care, yeah, care to share anything on that? Yeah, it was one of those things. You admit that you made a mistake, and it was only three years previous that I made the mistake. So I got suspended for something that I'd done previously, which was I happy with it? No, but at the same time, you commit the crime, you got to pay the price for it. So it was something I had to do. Three years previous is the, is what you get penalized for? Yeah, it was previous. So that was the unfortunate part is the 80, 86-ish, when my dad passed away, we kind of had a tough summer that year. So we, the Steve Smith goal, dad passing, it's kind of an ugly summer. So things got a little out of hand. And by the time 87 had rolled around, we got things cleaned up and we're off and running again. And we paid for it a little later. Oh, man, that's tough. I didn't realize it had been three years previous. Yeah, it's... Reporters wanted to write a story, and we got to pay the price for it. Hence why I didn't get along with the press real well for a while. I don't think anybody would get along with the press very well after that. So, but you know what? In hindsight, it's made me a better person, so I'm okay with it. Man, that's tough, though. Sorry, Grant. That, that, three years prior. Man, yeah. that must have been a hard pill to swallow because you end up sit, sitting out 59 games that year. Uh, what did I, I don't even remember how many I sat, something like that. So, yeah, I was, that was not a highlight of my career. During that time that you're sitting out for the suspension, did you get to be around the team? Did you get to uh, – No, know, you're not allowed. You weren't allowed to be in the dressing room, not allowed to hang out with the guys at the rink. But because our guys were so close, I would see the guys – at dinner, they'd make a point of seeing me later. But at that time, I spent a couple times a day in the gym. So you get to burn off frustration that way. Oh, that would have been – that had to have been brutal. That was no fun. I, the good thing about the gym is it burns off anger management. So you can be mad at the world. It doesn't do you any good. So you can just burn it off in the gym. Fair, um, but not being able to be around the guys and, and you know, when you listen to you talk, you can tell, and maybe I've heard you say it a few times, is that, you know, your sanctuary was on the ice with the boys, was at the rink, was in the dressing room. 
And to have that stripped away from you, well, I, I can't think of many other words than suck or terrible or not fun. Yeah, we were a little sour for a while. But you know what? I had a lot of great friends growing up, and they were all there. And that's the great part about it. So that's the fun part of playing at home is I, all the friends I went to high school with, went to grade school with, I'm still friends with. So I get to spend a lot of time with them. How was the 1990 Cup? You know, it was awesome, except that I ripped up a shoulder again that year <laughs> and had, it, had to have it screwed back together Boxing Day. So I ended up missing the last half of that season and watching most of the playoffs. Were, when you get traded out of Edmonton in that giant deal to the Leafs, was that something you were excited about then? Or were you, you know, at that time, you know, they started pieces of your guys' dynasty. It's slowly been moving out, moving out, moving out. Um, were you excited for the next chapter or was it uh, heartbreaking to go? You know, you know, once they traded Wayne that we were all going. So it was expected. It was only a matter of time. And for me, I felt pretty fortunate to go to Toronto. And as a young kid, I get to watch the Maple Leafs on Saturday night, hockey night in Canada. So if I got to go somewhere, Toronto was a pretty cool place to go. You got the history of the Leafs. As a young kid, I wanted to be a Leaf. So for me, it, was, it couldn't have been a better spot to go. What was the, the circus like in Toronto? Was it, was it all it was built up to be back then, or is it not even close to what it is today? Oh, no, it was still a media circus. I, mean, I think Toronto's always going to be a media circus. That's just the way it is. But Edmonton had big expectations, too. So going to Toronto, the media really wasn't that much different. There was just more of them. Was that hard to handle, or did you enjoy it? No, I didn't mind it. They had expectations. Coming out of Edmonton, I had expectations. So... For me, it wasn't any different. And for some of the guys in Toronto at that time, the expectations were a little bit of an anchor, but coming from a winning franchise, you're used to expectations. So it wasn't that big a difference. You know, you got to play with uh, some very, very, very talented goalies, let alone players, but goalies. Uh, we talked a lot about Andy Moog. Um, as a young kid, I remember watching Bill Ranford, um, yep. Dominic Hasek in Buffalo. Uh, Felix Potvin in Toronto. Felix, Felix Potvin, thank you. Out of all those guys, what was the one guy that just sticks out as like, man, he was good? Dom. Dom was probably the best guy I played with. And maybe the hardest worker, but talent-wise, maybe the most talented of the group, including me. He was an orthodox. It wasn't the prettiest style you'll ever see, but it's not about pretty. It's about getting it done. And that's the one thing about Dom is he hated to be scored on, whether it's practice or anything. And he just found a way to make it happen. Has there been any other goalie that even remotely close replicate his style, though? No, I think Dom's kind of a one-of. Yeah, like, I, I can't think of a single guy that uh, did I don't know. I, the starfish just comes up. Like he just found a way to somehow stop the puck and no yeah, other goalie right. in the history has done that. No. I mean, if you even going back into the fifties and sixties, nobody really did that. So Dom's was kind of a one of. 
Before I get to the, the final five questions, I thought maybe we could just briefly talk about uh, the St. Louis Blues because they always talk about it reviving your career that year you start 79 games, which is still mind-numbing. Um, but Good for an old guy. <laughs> not too bad, yeah. Um, you had guys like Brett Hull, Al McInnes, uh, Chris Pronger, Dale Howarchuk. Pierre Tergeron. Yeah, right? Like, so, you guys were... We had, good, we had a great hockey team. What was that group like playing for a year? And playing 79 games. Both were awesome. I mean, it couldn't ask for a better group of guys to play with, but it was fun to try and play every day. And I really enjoyed that. And for a guy that was, what, 35-ish at the time, it was fun to prove to people that I could still do it. Do you remember the reporters being like, I can't believe you're still playing right now? Oh, yeah. By the time I hit the 30-game mark, they were worried I was going to run out of gas. And like, you know you're old. And I'm like, yeah, I am. But I still enjoy doing this. So you just play on. You know, I, I say at the earlier, do you remember where you were when Gretzky got traded away from you? Do you remember where you were when Gretzky got traded to you that year? I actually played golf with Brett Hall. <laughs> so, that was the great thing about St. Louis too is you could play golf year round did you both have a big fist pump when you heard Gretz was uh, coming to the Blues well, I think we were excited about it I mean we had a good enough team to win a Stanley Cup that year I mean that's the one thing that people forget is how good that team was and we were on a roll going into the playoffs and then what happens in the playoffs yeah, we got a knee fell on and ripped up a knee pretty good. So that could put a crash and burn and end into those playoffs. If people don't remember, Nick, Nick Kiprios in what, game one, isn't it? No, we were in, what were we in? Game, the game one, game two. I mean, game two. Game two? I don't even remember. I'm not even, I don't even remember. I, I remember I had a, a summer of misery. I love to put it in parentheses, fell on you, because I think – and I, I've heard you talk about it lots, and I know you won't say he fell on you, or it was just a hockey play, and that's what guys do. But he fell on you. It was he fell on me. He didn't mean to hurt me, but he meant oh, to fall. Oh yes, on me. yeah, that's right, that's so, right. That's and that happened probably a thousand times before that without ever getting hurt. So it's just a freak thing where I had a leg caught in a wrong spot and happened to tear a couple of ligaments. I heard you tried uh, bracing it up and playing through that. Yeah, we thought we might be able to do it, but apparently you need ligaments to get back up if you go down. So it didn't work so good. Did you go out on the ice and at least try? I did. <laughs> Were you like, I can't, I can't get up? That was the problem. I went down once and I was stuck. So that's when we knew we were going to have a small problem. Oh, man. Well, I, I've really enjoyed this. I don't want to keep you six hours. I know you said right up the hop that it is basically like, ah, oh, I got nothing going on. But I don't want to overstay my welcome. So we'll get on to the final five, the Crude Master final five here. So a huge shout out to Heath and Tracy McDonald that have been sponsors of the podcast since day one. I've got some questions that came in, and uh, I thought we'd just long or short as you want to go, Grant. Uh, okay. The first one comes from Catlin Schneider here in Lloyd. He said, besides the well-known fact, of goalies being the best looking and most normal people on the team. Obviously he's a goaltender. He said, <laughs> you have any weird pregames uh, or in-game superstitions, anything that you did before the game or in-game? No, I'm the weird guy that just likes to go out and play. I mean, we used to sit and play table tennis up until 30 minutes before we went on the ice. So 
no weird superstitions. Nathan Brown, uh, a guy I played college with, wanted to hear about the early Euler parties. So he said, visualize whatever night you want. You get to walk back in there. Could you lead some of the fans through a typical Euler party when you were all young and single? Let's just say, think of how much you, fun you think it really is, and then times it by 10. That's how much fun we really had. Would... Uh, could you give a bit more of a teaser than that? Would you would you go to a bar? What? Was it a house party? Was it a boat? Probably all the above. We traveled together as a group. I mean, if you go back to, oh, what was it, 80, might have been 84, might have been 85, and look at the front page of the sun, it'll explain a lot. <laughs> what is on, that? What the, is on the, the Stanley cover? Cups? The Stanley Cup's in a really good picture. Where, where was the Stanley Cup at? Uh, might have been across the street from the Coliseum. So, uh, what was it called? I don't even remember what it was called at that time, but it was the Canadian Ballet. How's that? <laughs> and it managed, it managed to make it on stage and made the front page of the paper the next day. What, what was Sather's temperature after that, or he wasn't too worried about it? Uh, we all got called in the next morning to have it explained to us that it probably shouldn't be on the front page of the paper. <laughs> that would have been a great meeting to have sat in, I'm sure. It was, it was actually pretty entertaining. My, fa my father wanted to know, uh, first off, he, he wanted me to say that he remembers sitting, we, we'd gone to an Oiler game, this is after you retired, and you were at the Oiler, Oiler game, and we were sitting there watching, and he was standing waiting to go down to our seats. And we were young kids. And he said that, uh, unbeknownst to him, you walked up and we were, Oilers were getting beat 4-1 or something. And he said, ah, the boys aren't playing good. And he looked over and started talking to you and didn't realize who you were. And then he realized who you were. And by that time, he was coming down to the seat. And the, boy, the brothers, I, I got three brothers, we were all saying, oh, my God, I think Dad's talking to Grant Fear. And he got down. And we're like, Dad, you're talking to Grant Fear. And he said, yeah, I had no idea. And uh, he just wanted to say, first and foremost, that you were such a nice guy. Uh, that even at an Euler game, you were so easy going and would talk to anyone. So uh, he wanted to say, first off, hats off to you for that. Um, his question was, and you talked about McKinnis having the shot, but was there another guy out there that you were like, man, this guy has a shot that hurts? Uh, Brett Hall had a heavy shot. Reed Larson had probably the heaviest shot of anybody I played against. But Brett Hall had a quick one that seemed to jump on you. It was one of those that you could never really get set properly. It just seemed to jump on you all the time. And when you get pucks like that, sometimes they don't seem to catch all the equipment. They catch bare spots once in a while. So Holly had that quick shot. Did they leave marks then? Was it oh, they took bite. oh, yeah, they took bites out of you then. The gear was nothing like it is today, so it would take a little bite out of you. Do you ever wish you got to play with today's gear? No, I love playing in the old days. That was half the fun. If you could sit down with one person to pick their brain, who would you want to sit down with and have a coffee or a beer or beverage of your choice? Alive or dead? Alive or dead? Uh, probably Terry Sawchuk. I mean, I, I consider him to be the greatest at the position in history, so I think it would be fun to sit down and talk to him. Finally, I had a listener and – 
I'm not sure how often you get asked about it, but um, with everything that's going on in in the world today and more and more stories coming out about the NHL hazing, um, racial slurs, that kind of thing. Did you ever experience any racism while you played in the NHL? Uh, When I was in Canada, no. When I got to Buffalo a little bit here and there, I mean, I got, wasn't allowed to join a golf club, happened to be the, the wrong race. But it, at the same time, I was also taught growing up to just ignore it, go about your own business. So I, it's there. You hear the odd name when you're from somebody in the crowd, but at the same time, it shouldn't bother you. And you just try to ignore it and go out playing. But yeah, society, unfortunately, is taking a few steps backwards. I mean, you read about it in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and you would think society's moving forward. But for some reason, we've got it in reverse right now. I think at times social media really is creating more of a divide than bringing us together. What is because people can be anonymous. And I think that's the biggest thing about social media is people hide behind it now. It's funny. You talk to all our guys. We're happy we played in an area with no social media. We were allowed to have fun. The guys now can't have any fun. So is it good for things? Yeah, it's good for things. At the same time, it's interesting we were talking earlier about answering people on social media. It's fun to find somebody that wants to hide behind a keyboard and then you drag them out. I actually enjoy doing that once in a while, just because you know, they're hiding behind a keyboard. Well, I have really, really enjoyed this. I've been, uh, as soon as I knew you were coming on, I had it penciled. I told the brothers and dad and, they were all drooling at the mouth for obvious reasons. Uh, so I really appreciate you sitting down with me and, and taking some time and talking about your career. Uh, all the best to you in the future. And just thanks again, Grant. It's my pleasure, Sean. Side everybody up in Lloyd. Perfect. Hey, folks. Thanks again for joining us today. If you just stumble on the show and like what you hear, please click subscribe. Remember, every Monday and Wednesday, a new guest will be sitting down to share their story. The Sean Newman Podcast is available for free on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you find your podcast fix. Until next time. Hey folks. Back for another clue, are you? Maybe we're getting a little bit closer. We're only a few days, a few days, a few weeks away from uh, the 100th episode. And if you're just stumbling upon this, here's, here's what it is. I got a little contest going at the end of each podcast. Uh, You can enter. I I should point this out. You can enter on each podcast as each new clue is given. You can guess somebody completely new. Put it on your social media. Tag me in it uh, with the hashtag who's100. And I'll add you an additional name in the hat. Uh, And what we're drawn for is Sandy Beach has been kind enough for a round of golf for four people, two carts. Factory Sports has stepped up, $200 gift card. And, and like I say, in order to enter, tag the podcast and who's one, hashtag who's 100 with your guess for 100. For each post, whether it's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, or just head to a website and email me your guess, which people have been doing, you'll get an entry into this prize. So if you guessed Bill Murray and you want to change it, that's okay. Each episode, just fire off a new one. Make sure I'm tagged in it so I can see it. And... Uh, Let's have some fun here. I know there's some buzz going around. I, I've been getting hassled a lot. People uh, 
certainly have a, a thought on who Mr. 100 is going to be. I hope I'm uh, keeping it vague enough that nobody truly knows because I've truly told zero people. So uh, <laughs> nobody knows who this is. So that's that's the fun of it. So here's your hint for today. He's been in every NHL rink. All right. Every current NHL rink. Okay. Well, you guys have a great week. Be awesome out there. Have some fun. Spread some positivity. And we'll see you on Monday. Cheers.